Why is it that Pastor Russ just makes me smile looking at him? I don't know what I don't know what that is, but it's a good but it's a good thing. Hey, good morning to each of you. Thanks for joining us, whether here live in person, whether at North Avenue in person, whether online. We're glad to have you this morning, especially on a cold morning. And so uh, one of our folks in the first service reported that they had 21 below. That was the, their official number down in the valley at 21 below. I don't know if you can beat that or not, but if you can, just keep that to yourself. Um, we're hoping 21 stays as the record all winter long, but it finally feels like winter. And here we are together at no better place to be. This morning, I want to continue in our series about having a great new year. And I really don't mean that to be some trite thing, hey, have a great new year. I'm really talking about the idea that how this year goes is really greatly determined by you and by how you approach it and approach the moments of this coming year. So it really it has some, some validity to it that we determine whether it's going to be a great year or not. Don't let the circumstances of this year determine that for you. We determine that together whether it will be a great new year or not. So we're going to walk through that. Well, this morning I want to talk about resolutions. Talk about New Year's resolutions. Now, some of you might say, well, why would you talk about those now? Why not the very first Sunday when, you know, they're really fresh, like January 2nd when you preach? Why not talk about New Year's resolutions then? Because at then, the first Sunday of January, you actually thought you were going to see them through. By now, you know they're done. And so now is the time to talk about them because by now, they're pretty much history. And we can kind of regroup a little bit differently in this point. So we're going to talk about those. We'll get there in just a moment. So we're talking about how to great new year. And the first thing we talked about week one was we talked about from the passage from Philippians chapter 4 where God instructs us, the Apostle Paul, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And the thing we learned about that is that's actually a command. God's command to us, rejoice always. And immediately we go, how do we do that? I mean, in every one of our lives, the idea that God would give us a command, and of course he wouldn't command us to do something that we weren't capable of doing. But as soon as we hear that, most of us go, man, how do you rejoice always? Well, what we talked about is perspective, and that perspective changes things. And the way that you're able to rejoice no matter the circumstance is by how? By remembering all that you have in Christ Jesus. When you remember all that you have in him, when you remember what he has done for you, that gives you that perspective. That was week one. Then last week, we talked about this. In this coming year, make every key event, make every uh, unforeseen event, make every moment in your life, when it comes, make those moments one of God's redefining moments. We talked about the fact that this life is going to be full of moments, things that you can't see coming, things that are going to catch you off guard, all of those pieces, all of those things. But those moments can be redefining moments for you, God-given redefining moments. But you've got to seize those moments. We talked about how to go about doing that. That was last week. This week, let's talk about resolutions that actually make a difference. Resolutions that can actually make a difference. You see, a new year is always the world's ideal time for self-improvement, for a new you. Uh, every year, this is not a new thing this year, but every year when a new year comes, it's the world's green light, if you will, for the new you to make an improvement, to make a change. And what better time to start than a new year? That's kind of the thought. So a new you. Now, I know this will be hard for some of you to, to, to completely accept and believe, but when it comes to my relationship with my grown children and specifically my son-in-laws, I am relentless. Hard to get, I know, but I am just relentless. I mean, I'm forever looking at them saying, man, you are just wearisome to me. Man, you just, you know, I, okay, so at times I'll go, you know, you're just idiots. You're just idiots. Now, if that bothers you, you have to know me and put it in perspective and all of those pieces. But what happens is I'll say things like that because, well, they are. I'll say things 
And then, don't, don't be too bothered. Um, and then I'll catch myself at different times. I'll go, oh, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't talk like that. A new me. I'm going to pronounce a new Scott. I've got to tell you one moment that happened this past couple, just a couple weeks ago. So all, the fam- all, all of our families together. We had a game night. This is over Christmas time. Had a game night, and we get done with the games, and I, we're packing up things. We have a table, you know, a card table thing we have out there, and it has eight chairs around it. So we're kind of cleaning up. It's 11.30 midnight, and I see the boys grabbing chairs and taking them out to the garage or putting it at the garage door, a bunch of eight, eight folding chairs. So I don't think much about it. So they go out, and they take these eight folding chairs, and they stack these eight folding chairs, and they lean them up against a package of toilet paper that hadn't come in the house yet. A package of toilet paper. Now, a package of toilet paper weighs two pounds, maybe, and each chair weighs five. So you've got eight, you got eight chairs stacked, leaning against, precariously against this package of toilet paper. I go out to get something, same night, it's like 12.30 in the morning. I go out to get something, and I just brush against the chairs just brush against them, and of course, they come crashing down into my shin, around my feet. I'm holding the thing I had in my hands already, and now I can't move, and so I, I, you know, there's this crash, and I go, oh, those idiots. So about that time, the garage door opens. It's my wife, and she goes, are you okay? You know, she hears the crash, and uh, I go, yeah, I'm fine. She said, well, I heard something about idiots, and I said, yeah, I said, the boys came out and stacked chairs, and they stacked these chairs, eight chairs, against a package of toilet paper and she just simply says well the boys didn't put them there I did oh well that changes everything what do you say right then not one word all I could do is look at her as she goes yeah I put the chairs I mean it's just like Yeah, okay, you know, then she closed the door, went in, I'm going, oh, you got to be kidding me. Now those guys really are idiots. Because, because, I, and in fact, later when we were talking about it, she said, why do you think they did it? Because this is something they would do. And of course, they're standing there watching, laughing at my moment. So I have these moments, and all of my kids can tell you this, that, you know, I'll be cynical and all those things. And I catch myself, and immediately I'll have these moments where I'll say, you idiots. I'll go, you know what, I shouldn't have said that. I go, new Scott. Starting right now, new Scott. And whenever I say that, every one of my kids roll their eyes in disgust. And they'll go, no, new Scott. We are so tired of new Scott. I go, what do you mean? New Scott would be delightful. Yes, he would be if new Scott was real, if new Scott existed. But the problem is old Scott always kills new Scott. And old Scott comes back. Now, I say that because quite honestly, this is kind of the way resolutions go right? New year, new resolution. Problem is, old you kills new you, typically in the resolution round. But I want to say this is a starting place, so I'm going to give you maybe a better resolution, but I want to start by saying, don't give up wanting to change yourself. And I mean that so sincerely. Changing yourself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing to take, to stop and and reevaluate what, how you think and how you approach things like eating, It's a good thing to stop and look at what you eat and how you eat and how you should eat. It's a good thing to stop and look at how you exercise or don't exercise and maybe you should. It's a good thing to stop and say, hey, how do I spend my time? How do I spend my money? Uh, Am I saving, not saving? It's a really good thing to get out of debt. Financial Peace University, we're starting it just today. And it's, it's 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 a miracle moment for so many people. That's a good thing. How do I get slimmer? 
How do I look better in my shorts and my swimsuit come summer? Um, how do I get smarter? All of those are great things. And I mean so sincerely, throw yourself at them. Basically, this is the time of year where the whole world stops and says, how can I make myself better? But for this morning in these moments, I'd like to challenge your thinking and I'd like to get you to ask a different question. Instead of asking just the question, how do I make myself better, I'd like to challenge you to ask yourself a different question. It's a better question, actually, but it's also a harder question. I'll give you the question in a little bit, because to introduce the question, I'm going to read for you an entire chapter of the book of the Bible, but it's not a long chapter, so don't worry about it. I'm going to read you a chapter of the Bible. Something, ooh, good, we'll have a Bible story, just so you know, they're all Bible stories. But don't forget, the Bible is a collection of stories that go together to tell one story, and that story is about the incredible love of God. But they're all stories, and so yes, we're going to take a look at a, just one part of one of the stories in the Bible. It's taken from the book of Nehemiah. Now, let me give you some background here. We're going to have a bit of a history lesson, and you're going to see how history plays into this. But I want to challenge you to stick with me. Uh, I, I love the fact one person said, you know, I was sitting there this morning thinking to myself, um, how does this connect to this, connect to this? And then at the end, it was like, ah, aha moment. So stick with me, because you'll be wondering along the way where this is headed. Now, Nehemiah was actually a person, a Jewish person, who did such an extraordinary thing, did such an incredible thing, that the Jewish people couldn't stop talking about what he did and who he was, to the point, in fact, where his story becomes part of Jewish scripture. The story is found in the book of Nehemiah, and it's actually a very, very old, ancient, ancient story. And yet the Jewish people would talk about it. You go to Israel today, go to Jerusalem today, where it, Nehemiah went and rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And you can see some of the sites, and the guides are excited to tell you in some of the excavations. You look down into a pit, and, you can say, and they say, that's Nehemiah's wall. They still talk about Nehemiah. He did such an extraordinary thing. Now, the story we're going to look at this morning in this moment happened right after what Bible scholars call the Jewish exile. Let me quickly give you some quick history. In about 600 B.C., the Babylonians invade Judah. Judah would have been the kingdom of Israel, uh, the southern kingdom of Israel. The Babylonians invade it, and they conquer it. They invade Judah. They destroy the temple. They destroy Jerusalem. They tear all the walls of Jerusalem down to the ground. They take with them every single person of purpose or of value. So it's interesting, normally when you invade a place or conquer people, you usually take them all as slaves or you kill all the people. But they did something different. They were a little more sophisticated in their thought process. They left most of the Jewish people there. But they took from them anyone of value, anyone that mattered, anyone who was a leader, anyone who had possible leadership. They took the youngest people that looked like the, the smartest and brightest for the future. They took all those people with them. And even when they took them, they didn't necessarily put them in, in slavery, though technically they were slaves. They couldn't leave. But they allowed them to have jobs and live together and communities, all of those things. But they took all of the possibilities of the future for Israel and they pulled them out. Left the people with themselves with no organization and no leaders. You might recall some of the stories that we've preached upon here and that you've maybe read in your background reading scripture. The stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. That was during this 70-year period of time when they're in the exile. The stories of Daniel and the lion's done. That too is another story. These are some of the Jewish boys that were taken, that were potential leaders for the future, that were taken into exile. Now, this lasts for about 70 years, and what happens after 70 years is the Persians come in, and they overtake the Babylonians. 
So that's what, how it goes. You know, one group conquers another. Persians build up a size. They come in and they now, they overtake the Babylonians. So the leader of the Persian people comes in and he sees all of these Jews that are serving no real purpose. And he makes a decision that says, listen, look at all these Jews. They're all over the place in different places, but we don't need them. You know, we're not using them slaves and servants. We don't need them. In fact, I'm going to release them. So the leader of Persia steps in and says, all you Jewish people, you can go back. Go back to to, to Jerusalem. Go back to Judah. Go back to your homeland. And if you know some of the story or read about it, tens of thousands of Jews go back. But it's bad. It's really bad. Because don't forget, they're going back to a place that used to be theirs, but it's no longer theirs. You know, it's like if you've ever left, you moved away from someplace for X amount of years, you come back, you think, oh, it would be just like it was when I left. It's not ever, right? It changes. They go back, and it's radically different. People have moved in, taken over their homes and their farms and their land, so it's not theirs anymore. There's no work to be had. There's no economy. There's no safety. There's no government. There's no security. The walls are destroyed. Temples destroyed. There's no government in place. There's nothing there. And there's no work to be had. So they all go back with high hopes, but it's a desperate, desperate situation. This goes on for years and years, and now into the picture comes Nehemiah, and we pick up with the story in Nehemiah chapter 1. Now these are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaleah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity, and I asked about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the providence of Judah. They are in great trouble and absolute disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And when I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. There's a starting place of our story. And the story we have is that Nehemiah is in the fortress of Susa. Apparently, that's where the king was at as well because Nehemiah traveled with the king. And Nehemiah has uh, some brothers that he knows. We don't believe necessarily his actual brothers, but a fellow fellow brother in the, in the, in the, uh, uh, the body of the Jewish people. And they, they're back in town, and so he pulls them aside and says, tell me, how, how's it going for all those that went back to Jerusalem? And the word they get is terrible. I mean, it's like it's a horrible situation. Uh, it's, it's really, really bad. But then catch this verse in verse 4. And when I heard this report, I sat down and wept. That's the key part. I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. You say, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means that when he got that news, that was just not news to him. You see, we get news all the time, even disturbing news. But it means something else when it's news that actually breaks our heart. That's a little different. So this was not just typically news like we will get and we go, oh, how terrible. I mean, you know, he's getting the report from the guy. Oh, boy, I feel bad for you. I'm going to send a check. Yeah, I'm going to send a check. Who who do I send a check to? Maybe that will help a little bit. See, this was not just news. That was not his response. When he heard the report, his heart was absolutely broken to the place where not only did he weep and begin to cry, but it says that he actually mourned for days and he grieved for days and he prayed. In fact, we have his prayer recorded in verse 5. And then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love it and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. 
Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, the decrees, and the regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are faithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commandments and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place that I have chosen for my name to be honored. The people you rescued by your great power and your strong hand are your servants, O Lord. Please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. So there's a lot there that I need to unpack for you as we kind of walk through this resolution idea. He starts in his prayer by reminding God that God is a promise keeper. He said, God, you are the one who keeps your word. God, you are the one who keeps your promises. God, you are the one who keeps your covenants. And you do that from people to people, person to person, generation to generation. He actually lists the different ways that God has done that. And then he says, listen, you who are the God who honors the people who love you and, and, and follow you, please hear my prayers. Please see me down here praying. Look at my broken heart. Hear the prayers that I've been offering. And then he does a great thing, a thing that we're usually pretty slow to do. And he basically goes in and then confesses his sin. But notice in his confession, he does the part that we don't do. He actually confesses the sin of the people, but he doesn't talk about them. He talks about him. He says, Lord, we have, we have sinned against you. And then he adds in there, and I have sinned against you. No finger pointing. You see, so often in our prayers, we're quick to mention everyone else's failures, but slow to mention ours. I love the fact that what he says in here, he says, listen, we, the people have sinned. And then he goes, and by the way, I'm part of the people. I have sinned and my family have sinned. There's a good understanding of who he is and how he operates. I got a question for you. Now think about the last time someone's hurt you. Someone said something unkind to you. Someone did something that harmed you. I mean, someone went after you. And remember that feeling you had about how dare they and ready to take action. When's the last time you stopped and said, you know, I wonder who I've hurt? along the way. I wonder if I've ever done that. I wonder if I've ever said something to someone that was unkind, unthoughtful, and that was har uh, harming or damaging. And the answer to that is, yes, you have. And so I would suggest don't do the finger pointing. See, we quickly want to identify their sin when their sin is against you. But what he says here is, Lord, I want to identify sin, but I'm going to put, make sure I identify my sin here. And he said, I've been a part of this. And so it's a, it's a unique thing because few of us in our prayers begin by acknowledging how many times we let God down. And the uh, truth of it is, usually we, we go to prayer, we're usually praying because other people have let God down or let us down. And so we want to bring this prayer up to God because of them. And so he actually says, man, I'm the one. So no finger pointing here. And then he goes on and he affirms God's actions. Not only does he claim for his sin, but he affirms God's actions. He says, God, I remember, and I want you to remember, God, that you are the one who said, if you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you all around the world. You said that, God. And in fact, not only did you say it, but you did it, and we deserved it. It's all wrapped up in the, in the way he made that prayer happen. And then he also went on and said this, and because you keep your word, 
which you did, you also said, but if you obey me, return to me and live by my word, live by my commandments, I'll bring you back. I'll bring you back. I'll return you back to the land that I promised you. I'll bring you back to the place where my name will be honored. So Nehemiah is saying to God, listen, God, these are your words. You're the promise keeper. You're the one that honors the people who love you and serve you. So based on that, please see me here doing nothing here but trying to honor you, do the right thing. And on top of that, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get you to see that your people are honoring you. We're coming back. We're obeying you. So Lord, please hear my prayer. And then he does this. He says, so here's what I want from you, God. I want you to make me successful. Kind of a bold prayer, right? Grant me success. So the question we should ask then is what kind of success is he praying for? Success in what? Now, I don't have the time to go and read for you all the story of Nehemiah, so i got to jump to this piece and tell you real quickly what he's doing. The success that he wants from God, is asking from God, is that he's about to go to the king and ask the king to release him from his job so that he can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. He doesn't necessarily know he's going to rebuild the walls. He's going back to bring some stability to Jerusalem. But we find out historically he goes back. And one of the things Nehemiah does, he rebuilds all of the walls of Jerusalem. And this, this was no small project. This is a huge deal. So the success he's asking for is he's going to go to the king. And he's going to ask the king to release him from his job. So he's going to need God's favor. Now, what about his job? So he's about to go to the king and asked the king to release him from the most coveted job in the country, the most coveted job in the land that anybody would die for, whether you're there as a servant, a slave, or there by choosing and choice, anyone would die for his job, and he's going to go ask the king, hey, release me for doing this so I can go back to Jerusalem and do some work. So what was his job? Well, he lived in the palace. It was a cupbearer. The Bible tells us he was the cupbearer to the king. The cupbearer in that time would have been one of the highest, most trusted positions you could have. Because kings are always worried about someone trying to kill them, and usually they kill them by trying to poison them, and they usually poison them through the drink. And of course, usually the drink was wine, and so someone had to oversee the wine. Someone had to make the choices not only for the best wine, but to protect it and to taste it himself. That was Nehemiah. So you think about it, it's not a hard job. He's got a lot of responsibility ultimately, but it's not a hard job. In fact, he lives in the palace. He has all that he wants, all that he could ever need. Because of the trusted position it would be, he would be like the right-hand man to the king. And so he's in the presence of the king every day. And in this case, with King Artaxerxes, he was known as a benevolent king, and he was the most powerful man in the entire world. And every single day, Nehemiah got his ear. He stood in his presence every single day with the king. And he's about to go into the king and ask the king for a favor. If you're going to go ask the king for a favor, you really need God's blessing because kings don't give favors. Nobody comes to the king and says, hey, hey king, uh, king guy, uh, give me a favor, grant me a little request here. Doesn't happen that way. So he's asking for God's for success when he goes to the king and says, I'd like to leave your palace. I'd like to leave my incredible job. I'd like to go back to Jerusalem, and I'd like to help people start over again. You're going to need God's favor to ask a favor of the king. In fact, I like the way he ends the story because the story I just read for you, the final words he says in those days, I was the king's cupbearer. It's almost like a point of emphasis. He says, here's what I'm going to go do, and I'm going to go to the king and ask a favor. And he, it's almost like he says, and I want you to know 
I was actually the cupbearer. I had it as good as I could have it. Okay, there's the story. Now here's the question. I told you there's a question I would like for you to ask yourself as we approach this new year, which is a better question but a harder question, and here's the question. Here you go. Ready? What breaks your heart? The question I would like, to ask, like you to ask yourself, as opposed to the question, how do I make a better me or a new me this year, ask the question, what breaks your heart? What breaks my heart? When you look around your neighborhood, when you look at the people of your community, when you look at your city, when you look at your town, your kid's school, what is it that breaks your heart? What is it that you allow your heart to be broken over? What is it that might capture your attention to the place where you allow it to break your heart, if you will let it? You see, all through this coming year, you're going to have things that are going to catch you off guard. They're going to hurt you. People will hurt you. People will say things, do things, whatever. And I would suggest even a starting place to getting through those things is make sure you're looking for the thing that, what breaks my heart? Not just what people, what people do, but looking beyond that, what do you see around you happening that would you allow your heart to be broken? That situation, you know, that situation that you see that is so bothersome that we quickly try to explain it away, right? Because what I said is, what do we allow to break our hearts? See, we can see things that might break our heart, but very quickly we work hard to kind of get away from that to keep us from acting, to keep us with inaction. You know, we try to explain things away like this. Oh, that, that could really hurt my heart, but what can I do? Really, what, can I, what difference can I make anyway? Yeah, I mean, I would do something if there was something to do, but I'm a nobody. I don't have any real authority. And one person's not going to make a difference, so what can I do? I don't have any influence. What breaks your heart? It's a dangerous question, actually. And instead of going into this new year asking, what can I do for me? I would like to challenge you to go into this new year asking, and what can I do for those around me? Instead of what do I do to make me better, what do I do to make them better? And not by that statement, I'm not saying to change them. Instead of making my life better, how do I make their life better? See, there's a, there's a, a resolution that really makes a difference. How do I make their lives better? The truth is, the people in this world that you truly look at and admire, if you're honest, the people that you look at and truly admire their story, truly admire who they are, the kind of people that you'd want your kids to know about, the kind of story you read, their, the people that you read their biographies, the kind of people like you like to have your kids look at them as a model. Truth of it is, if you look at those kind of people, these are not the people who have hit their ideal weight because of hard work in the course of the year. These are not the people that you would say, look at how they got out of debt, which is a good thing. These are not the people who set a resolution to exercise every day and they've kept their word for the whole year. Those are not the people that we raise up as the idols and the models to our children. Good thing, but those aren't the ones. The ones that we idolize, the ones that we have a wow factor over, the ones that we look at and go, man, it's moving to see them in action, are the people that didn't seek out to improve themselves. It's the people who sought to improve the lives of others, right? The people that we most admire are the people who have gone out into this world and have decided to make this world a better place for people. Those are the ones that get our attention. Those are the ones we look at them and say, man, look at that life. Now look at, and listen to this very carefully, no one has the power and typically the ability to go out and actually change the world. You know, all of the commencement speeches that people have given, you know, you new graduates go out and change the world. Nobody has the power or the ability within all reality to go out and change the world. But every single one of us have the ability to change one little slice in this world. 
Every one of us has the ability to change someone's life in this world, which means we got a little piece of the pie, if you will. Now, if you don't do this with your life, if you don't allow your heart to be broken over something that really matters and then go into action, you'll do one of two things. I can tell you right now, you do one of two things. The first one is this. You'll be watching TV. You'll see something that should break your heart. You'll see someone somewhere in your community, something that breaks your heart. And what you'll immediately do is you'll begin to blame someone or blame something. If you're not going to allow your heart to be broken to the place where you get into action, one of the things you'll do is begin to blame. You'll blame those people. You'll blame it's the president's fault. It's the radical left's fault. It's the radical right's fault. Um, it's, you know, it's those politicians. It's the school's fault. Uh, it's Congress's fault. It's the church's fault. And even worse, it's the pastor's fault. What you'll do is you will find someone to blame. You'll see someone in need and you'll say something like this. I don't know why they're homeless because everyone's hiring. Right? We do. We immediately go down the road where we look for someone or something to blame. You'll find others that along the way that you can look at them and you'll see their lives and blame something or something for what should be breaking your heart. It's a good way of insulating yourself from it. The second thing you'll do is not only will you blame others or other things, the second thing you'll do is you'll find other people who agree with you in your line of blaming and you'll have a great time being with them together while you blame the rest of the world. That's what we do. You see, if everything's horrible in the world, we'll blame somebody for it, and then we'll find other people who agree with us, and then we'll have a great time sitting there blaming everyone else and feeling really good about the fact that we are not obligated to act because we all agree. And what we even say is this. See, it's not just me. I don't just feel this way. There are a whole group of people that feel the same way I feel. Listen, don't feel all that good about that. Because we have a way of finding each other out and finding each other and grabbing a hold of each other so we can all feel good about our inaction. And just so you know, that happens in all of life. This one thing happens in all of life. Blamers are not changers. Blamers aren't changers. I've been doing ministry long enough to know that when people come out of the office blaming about somebody or something, I look at them and basically say lost cause because they're not going to be a changer. It's too easy to be a blamer. That's true in marriage. That's true in business. That's true in school. You name it. I have so many couples through the years come in for marital counseling. As long as they're going to blame each other, I, might, I just don't even bother. Why waste the time? I've even said that at times to people. Listen, you're too busy blaming each other. Why don't you come on back when you're done blaming? Because while you're blaming, you will not be changing. That's the way it works. Blamers aren't changers. So I come back to the question again, what breaks your heart? What will you allow your heart to be broken over to the point where you change? Now, if you're not a believer, not a follower of Jesus, you might be here thinking to yourself, oh, good, this kind of thing is not for me. He's talking to the Christians. And I would suggest, no, it's for all of us. In fact, throughout history, you will find, if you go look, extraordinary things have happened because people, not just Christian people, have actually let their hearts be broken to the place of needing to do something. But admittedly, I'm talking to Christians. Specifically, those of you who are followers of Christ, listen carefully. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, to the best of your ability, if you are following Jesus, you are to model what he modeled. And he modeled his whole life to make someone else's life better. So if you're a follower of Jesus, the model we follow is a model that says, how do I make someone else's life better, not just mine? All through the Bible, all throughout Scripture, a person's devotion to God oftentimes is measured in terms of our devotion to others, right? 
All through scripture, God said, listen, your talk is cheap. You talk about loving me and you don't love your brother. So all through scripture, our, our faithfulness has often been measured by how we treat other people. Jesus taught a revolutionary thought. One of the things that Jesus did when he was on this earth teaching, he turned, and we've talked about this, he turns the world upside down in teaching. Because what he did in his teaching, he basically broke the mold and said this. Their culture, up to that point, their entire culture was on a, it was on a, a caste system. Meaning it, their whole system was on a pecking order. I mean, the people up here, and then it worked their way down. It was all about that. And Jesus comes in and says, you know what? There's no more pecking order. There's no one who's better than anyone else. There's no one who, they may have more money, they may have more education, but that means nothing. Jesus comes in the one who breaks that mold. He basically says, no more pecking order. People have value, period, and it's the same value. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. It doesn't matter if you're masked or unmasked by our terms today. It doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. It doesn't matter if you're man or woman, adult or child, white or black. People matter, period. That's what Jesus said. And that would have turned their whole world upside down. And we still see it today. We say, yeah, yeah, we, we're, we agree with Jesus, but the battle is still here with who we think is a little better than everyone else and who's more compliant, whatever it might be. Jesus said, no, people have value, value regardless of who they are, of what they believe, of what they have or don't have, or the color of their skin. So to be like Jesus, the only, the only order is the order that all people matter. So accordingly, if you look at Scripture, Throughout all the generations of Christian history, real Christians, and when I say real Christians, I'm talking about real, honest, true life followers of Jesus Christ. What other things have they done? Well, they've built hospitals, not for Christian children, not for Christian people, but for all people, sick people. They have built orphanages, not for Christian children, but for children. They have built shelters, not for homeless Christians, but for the homeless. It was Christians who waged the war and raised the alarm to sex trafficking and started a movement to stop it. It was true followers of Christ who led the abolitionist movement to bring an end to slavery, the true followers of Jesus, to bring an end to slavery. It was true Christians who have been at the heart of every civil rights movement. So what that means is this, to follow Jesus, you cannot treat or see people as less than anything other than you. They've got to be right there, same value as you see yourself. Because Jesus didn't do that. Jesus never saw people in lesser values. Friends, Jesus set the world upside down in its thinking. No more classes of people, just people. Listen to this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. You know where that great truth of the Declaration of Independence came from? It came from the Creator who made everyone equal. That's where that came from. So when something breaks your heart about human rights, when something breaks your heart about suffering people, you need to know at that moment your heart actually looks like the heart of Jesus. And it's supposed to look like that. Now something that I need you to see and something that I need you to know and understand Nehemiah's heart was broken by divine design, not simply by human emotion. 
I'm going to come to the key here that unlocks this whole message and understanding. You need to understand that Nehemiah's heart was broken by divine design and not simply human emotion. When I'm sitting at home watching TV and some ad comes on for the abuse of animals and so I can adopt an animal for $25 a day, adopt a dog or adopt a cat, the music comes on and like most of us, we just look away because it's just pitiful and, and, and it hurts. It's just like, oh, that's an emotional response. I'm not talking about an emotional response like that kind of broken heart moment. I'm talking about what Nehemiah had was a heart broken by divine design. Christians' hearts are to be broken by divine design. Here's the sacred truth I need you to hear. A sacred truth that Nehemiah believed, that the people of his day believed, and that we need to know and believe today. Now get this. Something that the ancient Jewish people believed and Nehemiah believed and that Christians have believed but seem to have missed, missed it or forgotten it is this key thought, and that is that history is linear. I'm going to explain it. If you're sitting there thinking, okay, I was hoping for something more moving, well, stick with me. One of the things that Nehemiah got and understood, that the ancient people understood better than we do, is that history is linear. What does that mean? It means that history is going somewhere. If you look at the history of the world up until this point, it's been leading to this point, and from this point forward, it's still going somewhere. See, we, we talk about eternity, the day when Jesus will return, the day when there's a new heaven and a new earth. See, it's all moving towards a moment. So they believe that history was linear. It means that, that all through history, history was working towards something in the future. All through history, God was working in history towards specific goals and towards a specific end. They believe that. Now, what they, though they believe that to be true, what Nehemiah didn't know and couldn't possibly see is that when God, now make sure you follow me now, that when God stirred Nehemiah's heart to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild those city walls, it was actually a part of a sequence of events that Nehemiah couldn't possibly have completely understood. A sequence of events that had happened before Nehemiah and events that were going to happen after Nehemiah. But all Nehemiah could see was what he was doing in this moment. Now, see, we have, or actually he had a critical role to play, but he had no idea what hung in the balance. He had no idea what was hanging in the balance by his action based on his broken heart. You see, he heard the news, his heart broke, and that broken heart moved him then to go to do something and to approach the king. But at that point, he couldn't possibly have known all that hung in the balance by his obedience. Let me give you a little history. It fills it all out. About 70 years before God had stirred Nehemiah's heart, he stirred the heart of a guy named Zerubbabel. Now, what God told him to do is God stirred his heart and told him, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to rebuild the temple. So Zerubbabel, actually, his name Zerubbabel goes back and he actually builds the temple. About 14 years before God stirs Nehemiah's heart, God stirs the heart of a guy named Ezra and he stirs Ezra's heart and says, Ezra, I want you to go back and I want you to go back and reestablish the teaching of the law, which means the word of God. Ezra, you go back to the people and you reestablish God's word and God's commands. You go back to the temple. You get the temple going again as a place of worship. And then, after that, he stirs Nehemiah's heart and he says, I want you to go back and I want you to reestablish this great city because the people have lost their identity. 
They're there, but they're scattered. They're there, there's no government. There's there, there's no organization. They're there, but there's no safety. I want you to go back, get the people organized, open and rebirth this great city that is my people's city because they've lost their identity. And when you rebuild the city, they'll have their identity back. Now, all of that was done in preparation for what Nehemiah couldn't have known would have come 444 years later. What he was doing was part of a sequence of things that was going to be fulfilled 444 years later when the last Jewish prophet, when the last sacrificial lamb, when the last high priest, when the last king would enter into the eastern gate of Nehemiah's wall. And the eastern gate of Nehemiah's wall actually entered right into the place of the Temple Mount. And where he would walk into that place where Zerubbabel had built the temple and where that king would ride into that place and begin to teach and preach the very truths that Ezra had taught. And every piece that they did was preparing for the moment when Jesus Christ, as King of Kings, would walk into that city, would walk into that temple and proclaim that hope had come. They were part of a sequence of events 444 years earlier that they couldn't possibly have known or seen coming. All they had to do is be obedient in the moment. That's how. Just be obedient in the moment. You see, friends, all that happened in all of the Old Testament history was preparing for the moment when God would send his son into our world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to take away our sin. And God's whole plan on that started with a broken heart. Think about that. God's plan to redeem the world started with a broken heart for his people. And all that history for the Old Testament was building to that day when his son would come and enter through that gate and go into that temple and preach his truth. All history was setting up for that moment that we just celebrated, Jesus coming to earth in a barn where he would come and love and minister to people. When he would walk into that gate, when he would walk up Calvary's hill, when he would die on Calvary's cross as a final sin sacrifice, once and for all. All of that history was moving to the place and leading to the place where he would go into the grave and three days later he would come out of the grave absolutely victorious. Once again he would walk with the people and then he would ascend back into heaven. But he would not go back into heaven until he said this. Two things. One, I will not leave you alone. I will send my spirit here to live inside of every one of you. And the second thing is this. I will return. I will come back And I will come back for you. All of history to that point was waiting for that moment. But now hear this. And everything from that moment on is working towards the fulfillment of that next promise where he said, and I will come back. And I will return. Friends, from that day when he left up until today and all through tomorrow until he returns, everything in this history in which we live, including you and your New Year resolutions, are a part of the fulfillment of that piece of history which is yet to come. You and I need to hear this. I need to hear this. We have no idea what hangs in the balance of our decision 
to act when God has broken our heart. When you have a moment when your heart breaks for something and you've got to make a decision, do I act on it or do I not? We have no idea what hangs in the balance. We have no idea how, who or how many people, how their lives will be affected for eternity when your heart breaks or my heart breaks for something or for someone and you say, okay, God, I'll go and make it right. I will seek to go make that difference. I will give. I will serve. I will engage. You have no idea what hangs in the balance when in that moment you say, my heart is stirred and I'm going to do something about it. In 1965, 1965, five families felt God stir their hearts to start an Alliance Church in Essex Junction, Vermont. Five families. They'd gone to a Christian camp together. They spent time together. And they lived out in this direction, Essex direction. There was a church they attended, a North Avenue Alliance Church. And they would drive through this area. IBM was, was here going strong and bringing people in. And they would drive past Essex to go down to Burlington. Five families said, we think God wants us to start a church in Essex. That five families got together. They met in, in, in homes and Bible study for, for some time. And then they finally had their first opening Sunday public service, which was held in Essex High School, which is known today as Albert D. Lawton Middle School, just not too far from here. That first Sunday, there weren't a whole lot of people, though it still felt full because at least two of those five families each had five or six kids. So that's one good way to start a church and have it grow quickly. But that first Sunday, just those five families. It was that, faith, that way for a while, but they were absolutely faithful all along the way. Now, I look at this room. I know some of you, many of you watching online, so I can't actually see you, but for many of you, I've seen you through the years. And the truth of it is, some 67 years later, we're all new. And you're all new at one point in time. Some of you are new this week or new last week or new in the past couple of months. But truth of it is, all of us can remember when we walked in here after that particular day because for the most part, all those people that were in that first service have now gone home to be with Jesus and then certainly have moved away from here. So from that perspective, we're all new. Now, I've been here for a while. So some of your faces I readily recognize because I've seen you for years or for months even. But there are different times where I'll see a face I don't recognize. And I have to tell you, when I see a face I haven't seen before, when I see your faces that I do know, but I can remember when some of you first came, I find myself thinking, man, what if they would have said no? But I'll tell you, the most moving moment for me is not necessarily where I, when I just see you on a Sunday morning, but every baptismal service, when I hear stories of people who have said how Jesus Christ has changed my life and that this church or someone in this church has been a part of it. Every time I see one of you baptizing someone on this stage, I think to myself, what if they would have said no? What if they would have said, well, there's already enough churches. What's well, a few more miles to North Avenue? What would have happened if they would not have allowed their hearts to break? Now listen very closely to the ending. 
A new year is the beginning place for many people to start new resolutions. I think you should eat better, just for the record. I think you should exercise. If you're in deep in debt, get out of debt. I think you should get out of All those are good things, and I mean very sincerely run at them. But you know what? Those things are not the things that are breaking your heart. What will you allow your heart to be broken over? When you look at some person, some situation, what are you willing to let your heart to be broken over to the place where you say, I can and I will do something? You see someone or know of, of someone that you can say, I can make their life better. You see a ministry within the church where you say, I can make that ministry better. I'm going to act on it. What is it for you? Now, all of this doesn't mean you're going to become some kind of crazy activist in the next year. I doubt very much that God is going to call any one of you to quit your job, to give it all up and run off someplace. He could, but doubtful. I think he'd be just as content if you'd stay right where you are in your own sphere of influence and you would just decide to go make someone's life better and go do it. This is how great things happen. Someone allows their heart to be broken and then says, I'm going to go do something about that. This coming year, I hope that's your heart. I hope it's mine. Because that doesn't change the world, but it changes somebody's world. But a slice this big, but it changes somebody's world. Now that, my friends, I think, is a better New Year's resolution. Stand, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your truths. I thank you from your truths from the New Testament to the Old Testament. I thank you for truth from history. I thank you for a little story about Nehemiah who heard news that broke his heart and moved him into action. Can you imagine, Lord, yes, you can, what our church would be like, what our neighborhoods would be like if just the people who are hearing this message today would say, you know what, in the course of this year, I'm going to let my heart be broken over something, over someone that I see, some story, something in my neighborhood, my community. I'm going to let my heart be broken, and I'm actually going to go act upon it. Lord, I won't pray for anybody else now. I pray for me. Break my heart and find in me obedience to go do something about it. For then my heart looks like your heart. I pray that for me. And I pray that for us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.